Chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of, the, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Let's pray, please. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day. We thank you for calling us, Lord, into the worship of your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, the worship of you through your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. Lord, we give you thanks for the worship that you have allowed us to participate in so far this morning, Lord, through song and through confession and through liturgy. And so, Lord, as we continue to worship you through the hearing of your word, And through more singing in Eucharist, Lord, we do give you praise, God. Lord, and we pray, Father, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear and to believe and to understand. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, in the work, The Cost of Discipleship, which is a very familiar book to many of us here at Christ Community Church, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this in his first chapter. He says, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. So I think these words are as true today as they were when Bonhoeffer first wrote them in 1937. At least according to the copyright date of the book that I have. Uh, But being identified in Christ and being identified with Christ taking on the character traits of Jesus as he describes for us in the Beatitudes that we looked at last week, this is a call to costly grace or through costly grace. Bonhoeffer continues through that first chapter uh, to identify the difference between cheap grace and costly grace throughout chapter 1. So if you'll allow me a moment, I'm going to somewhat paraphrase a longer quote that I took from throughout that chapter. But I think these differences are really helpful as we move into these sections of salt and light and righteousness exceeding the scribes and the Pharisees. So here's what Bonhoeffer says. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. 
Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without sin, uh, absolution of sins without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross and without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. It is the gift which must be asked for and the door at which we must knock. And it is costly because it calls us to follow. It's costly because it costs us our lives. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. But it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And it is grace because it gives us the only true life. Because it justifies the sinner. And because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives. But delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And so the reason I share this quote is is for this purpose. Within the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does is he lays out for us how our identity in him is a work of costly grace. Because within this sermon, Jesus describes for us the law of the kingdom of heaven and that same law by which citizens of the kingdom of heaven will be judged and held accountable. And it is costly because it calls us to be fully identified in Christ and with the gospel and as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so this work of costly grace begins with Christ calling us to repentance, as we saw two weeks ago in Matthew chapter 4. And then Jesus began to lay out our identity in him last week with the Beatitudes, again, these chief character traits of a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. And then this week, we transition into what our Eastern Orthodox friends call the New Covenant section of the Sermon on the Mount. And so to start grasping this well, I want to begin at the end. So you're going to have to go all the way to the bottom of your bulletin and then into the next page. Because this is the final verse of our text today. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says this. He says, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a heavy comment. So before I start to unpack it for us, I want to do something that's really neat. If you've got your Bible or your device, make sure you've got this pulled up, just because I think this is really neat. I want you to notice what Matthew has done with this text, both here and what he did through the Beatitudes last week. Matthew uses a really neat literary technique. Now, last week I made the comment that the Beatitudes are laid out somewhat like a chiasm, but he uses another technique here that I think is really fascinating. He uses a technique called sandwiching, which is a lot um, easier for us to grasp, right? Because we all know what a good sandwich is, right? Uh, So in, in Scripture, sandwiching takes two seemingly unrelated texts and kind of smushes them together, right, to make a point about the whole. So... Mark is really notorious for this. So if you want a good example, go to Mark 11, which begins with the triumphal entry, but then there's a cursing of the fig tree with the temple smashed right in between the cursing and the the explanation of the cursed fig tree. But Matthew, what he does here is he makes a really interesting use of it in the Sermon on the Mount to show us how our identity in Christ, how our righteousness in Christ is a work of costly grace. And so like every good sandwich, you need bread, right? unless you're one of those weird people that likes to not have sandwich bread, right? No. Uh, but 
But for our bread, what we have is we have Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 in the Beatitudes and our text that we just read here in Matthew 5.20. And so in Matthew 5.10, we read this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have our bread, this call to righteousness and exceeding righteousness, and then all the fixings of your sandwich come here in between. And so we have this call to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, and then now Jesus telling us that our righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. And so as, as a believer who lives... As a believer lives in accordance with the righteousness that we are called to here, there is to be a desire that leads us to action to live according to the will of God. And so Jesus tells us here in Matthew 5.20, he says that our righteousness must then exceed or surpass or outdo the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, who were, in their time period, the religious elite of the elite. Calvin writes here and he states this. He says, this charge brought by Jesus against the scribes and the Pharisees is against their doctrine. It's against their teaching. And he says, and we can see this as we continue through the sermon, where he removes from the law all of their false and wicked interpretations and restores it to its purity. So this tells us that what Jesus is demanding of us here in this verse is that those who are identified in him... This is a righteousness to which the kingdom of heaven truly points to. And so here is where this sandwiching of Matthew 5.10 and Matthew 5.20 really comes into play. Because if we are to be identified in Jesus, then he, Jesus himself, must be our righteousness. Paul tells the Corinthians this in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He says, it is because of God that you are even in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. And so furthermore, if Christ is our righteousness, then his righteousness is how we exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And his righteousness is how we enter the kingdom of heaven and are able to live by the principles that he presents through this entire sermon. And so again, this, in this text, Jesus shows us that this is a work of costly grace, not by redefining the law, but by defining the law of God appropriately. And so in verses 17 through 19, which is the rest of this second section here of this passage, and really this whole Sermon on the Mount, this is not a new teaching, but rather it is a better teaching because it is a teaching that comes with the authority of God. At the end of this sermon over in Matthew 7, Matthew writes this. He says, when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. And so Jesus illustrates this divine authority, which is what this entire second section is about. He illustrates his divine authority in verses 17 through 19 by choosing his words very carefully here. So I want to look at some of them before we double back to salt and light. And it begins there about the middle of your paragraph in your bulletin with the words, do not think. So he begins verse 17 here by explaining to the crowds that have gathered now, not just his disciples, but obviously possibly some others. And he explains to them how to not interpret his teaching. Essentially what Jesus is doing here right after the Beatitudes is offering a disclaimer right, for this whole sermon. He's saying, and the reason here is very simple. 
he says that the scribes and the Pharisees, as they would understand it, he is about to violate the law in their minds. He is about to overturn the law in their minds. And so he anticipates their accusations against him, and he says this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, and I have not come to abolish the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but instead to fulfill them. And so what he's saying essentially is that these are not attacks against the law of Moses. In fact, this entire teaching that I'm about to give you is going to be grounded in the law and in the prophets. There is no need, he's telling them. There's no desire. I don't even have the intention of calling for the abolishment of the law. Rather, I'm about to fulfill the law. And we've already seen him begin this in this season of Epiphany so far. In the fulfillment, uh, the fulfillment of the law began with his baptism by his cousin John. In Matthew 3.15, we read this just a few weeks ago. He says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus fulfills the law by obeying the law. He fulfills the law in this moment here in this sermon by explaining how the law of the kingdom of heaven is to shape our motives and our attitudes, not just our actions. This is how the law of the kingdom conforms us into the image of Christ and surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. But then moving into verse 18, we come to another phrase where, if I'm being completely honest, on Thursday, Friday, I was working on this, and I, I got what I simply would call a little giggy, gi- giggly and giddy, right? I got really excited because this was just a lot of fun. Because I, got, I was just amazed at how meticulous Jesus is being here with what he's doing. And this is really what's fun about studying Scripture, because you get these moments where you can't help but laugh. It's not funny, but you just can't help but get excited. Because what Jesus is doing here in this one verse is explaining again, like he did last week, his own divine authority. And he does it by drawing upon another Old Testament character trait of Yahweh. And what he does here in this verse is he swears by himself. So listen to this. He says this at the beginning of the verse. He says, for truly, I say to you. Now let's work this out because he does not use the word swear here. right? It's like I'm not promising by myself. I'm not swearing by myself. So let's work this out because here's where it gets fun. So let's remind ourselves of the setting of the sermon that we set up last week. So in Matthew 5.1... We are reminded, I mean, this is called the Sermon on the Mount, right? It is set on a mountain. And so Matthew writes, seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So again, this is not an insignificant detail. Connor made the same comment in Sunday school this morning. There are no details in Scripture that are insignificant. This is a significant detail. So if you remember from last week, we mentioned how throughout the entire Old Testament, God consistently uses mountains not only to reveal himself, but for the purpose of instruction before doing a new work among his people. And we see this through the example of Moses. He receives the law on a mountain. He gets the commission to go back to Egypt and for the exodus on a mountain. And we see it with Elijah. Elijah goes and hears the still, small voice of God. He is given the commission to anoint a new king and a new prophet. In Christ, the law and the new exodus is taking place. And in Christ, a new king and a new prophet is anointed. But then we see this also through the example of Abraham. 
So let's journey back then to Genesis 22. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but you're welcome to. And we're going to the mountains of Moriah with Abraham and his son Isaac. And this is where Abraham is commissioned to take Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice. And we read in that chapter where God, right after stopping, he stays Abraham's hand right before he offers Isaac as a sacrifice. And then when he does, he reconfirms his covenant with Abraham by declaring this in Genesis twenty two sixteen, God says, by myself I have sworn. Now why would God do this? Now this is where scripture is great because... Hebrews doesn't leave us wanting. It explains this to us. The author of Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 13 says, When God made the promise to Abraham, he swore by himself because he had no one or no thing greater by whom to swear. So let's go back to the Mount of Beatitudes, right? Let's go back to the mountain with Christ and the disciples. Like last week, And here in verse 18, like last week, Jesus is again equating himself with the authority of Yahweh. Not only by taking his people up a mountain for instruction and for revelation, but by his own authority and within himself, he confirms the new covenant and the law of the kingdom of heaven the same way God does with Abraham. And so what Jesus is doing here, what he's telling us here by his own authority then, is this. He says, For truly I say to you, I swear by myself to you that heaven and earth will pass away. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says not even the smallest part of the law will pass away until everything has been fulfilled. And so what Jesus is again doing here is upholding the law by insisting now on its permanence. It would be easier, he says, for heaven and earth to pass away than for an iota or a dot, these small little markings in Hebrew, which interestingly for the Star Wars nerds in the room, iota is actually pronounced Yoda, kind of like the little short guy. I mean, it's probably pronounced a little bit more meticulous than that, but I like Star Wars, right? So, but an iota or a yota and a dot will not pass from the law. And Jesus displays here that his commitment to the law is both complete and it is eternal. And so then with this authority, he continues into verse 19. And he says this, he says, therefore. So again, with that word, right? He's basing all of this on verses 17 and 18. Therefore then, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what he is saying is that this does not only include the teaching that he is about to lay out through the rest of Matthew 5, 6, and into 7, but he is saying that this also includes the entirety of God's revealed word in Scripture. And then he offers a threat of judgment. He says here, he says, those who would be identified in him. He says, as those who would be identified with him and the gospel and the kingdom of heaven, he says that if we neglect the entire counsel of God through the entirety of scripture and we encourage others to do the same and we teach others to do the same, then we are acting upon cheap grace and we will be judged rightly. But he also says the obedient disciple 
leans into the costly grace of identification with Christ. And they faithfully teach and they faithfully live the full counsel of God as revealed in his word. This is how our righteousness exceeds and surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because this is being identified with and conformed to the righteousness of Christ Jesus himself. And so with that authority in mind and that commitment to the eternal law in mind, what are we to do with this, right? How are we to move forward then from here to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, Jesus tells us in verses 13 through 16. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its saltiness or its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be trampled, thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So for us that have any familiarity with Christianity, right? If you've been around the church pretty even slightly, you're probably familiar with these metaphors, right? Whether that be through reading them on your own or hearing a sermon or a teaching of them, we've heard these metaphors of being salt and light before. And what Jesus is doing is he's using them to make the same very obvious and basic point. By calling disciples of the kingdom of heaven, by calling his disciples and his followers salt and light, He is drawing upon both the visible and the observable changes that salt and light have on their surroundings, on their environment. And so building out of this exceeding righteousness and this authority of God and this authority of Christ and this commitment to the law, let's explore how these two metaphors relate to our identity in Christ. So first, salt. Let's just take them one at a time. Salt. We all are pretty familiar with salt, right? We still all probably have table salt in our home somewhere. Now, I've sadly reached the age where I have a doctor now telling me to cut back on my salt. And if you ever want to be humbled, that's, that's a moment in your life when you realize you're getting too old, right? I mean, I'm not old, but, but I'm getting old enough now. I can no longer eat like I, wasn't, like I did in college, and that's, that's just heartbreaking, guys, because I love food, right? But we're familiar with salt, and we're familiar with its uses. Salt both gives flavor to bland food, but it also enhances the flavor of foods. Salt is a preservative. It can slow the decay of food. And according to 2 Kings 2, interestingly, salt can also be used for purification. Calvin, interestingly, he goes so far as to call salt the primary job function of disciples of Christ. He writes this. He says, when Christ calls disciples the salt of the earth, he means that it is their office to salt the earth. Because men have nothing in them but what is tasteless until they have been seasoned with the salt of heavenly doctrine. Our Eastern Orthodox friends note that salt illustrates the role of disciples of Christ in secular society within the world. They say that as the salt of the earth, Christians are the preservatives of God's covenant. And here we are thinking preservatives are bad things, right? We are the preservatives of God's covenant. And because of Christ, we give true flavor to the world. And we can see this best really through the biblical framework of covenant. Particularly, 
a covenant called a covenant of salt, which is quite fascinating. So interestingly, this phrase, covenant of salt, only occurs three times throughout the entire Bible. It's in Leviticus 2, it's in Numbers 18, and again in 2 Chronicles chapter 13. But even though it only occurs three times in Scripture, its impact reverberates like a stone on a pond. It's, it's like, like the ripple effect of a, a rock thrown in water. And it reverberates all the way here to the Sermon on the Mount and continues. And so, it, because it's here where, again, I started to get a little excited, right? I got all giggly again, and I chuckled out loud. I think Sharon was in the other room watching television or something, so she didn't hear my weird laughing over this. But because I got excited because Jesus knows exactly what he's doing with this illustration. Again, nothing is in Scripture by accident. So, a covenant of salt, so simply defined to help us understand what Jesus is doing here. A covenant of salt, by definition, is considered by God to be an everlasting covenant. So let's see why. Remember, salt not only enhances the flavor of foods, but it also acts as a preservative. It can slow decay. Until refrigeration, which is a very new invention among us, the most common way to preserve food, other than maybe canning when we figured out how to do that, the most common way to preserve food was through salt, by salting it, because it helped to delay spoilage. So consider how this relates to our identity in Jesus. Under the sacrificial system, salt was a mandatory but also a critical element in offerings made to Yahweh. If you were to go to Leviticus 2 and read about the covenant of salt, you see these moments where he, he commands a sacrifice with salt added to almost everything. Even according to one Jewish source that I consulted, they, they stated that including salt in the sacrifice was itself for them an act of remembrance of the covenant. And here's where it's get, if you haven't, weren't having fun already, here's where it gets really fun. Salt also acts as a yeast inhibitor, meaning it slows down the growth of yeast. It slows down the reproduction of yeast. And yeast, especially in Scripture, is also commonly referred to as leaven. Now, leaven is a biblical word that we're all pretty familiar with. Throughout Scripture, leaven symbolizes both sin and rebellion and even false teaching. In Matthew 16, we read this. Jesus says to his disciples, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then in verse 11, he goes on and he says, How is it that you fail to understand that I, did not, I do not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the point here is this. A covenant of salt is an agreement that is meant to endure. It is meant to be everlasting. And as disciples of Christ and members of the kingdom of heaven who are identified in Jesus and with the gospel and with the kingdom, we are the salt of the earth. We are meant to endure and to preserve and to purify and to flavor the earth by proclaiming the true and everlasting covenant of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it's this aspect of a covenant of salt, this enduring covenant, that informs Jesus' statement in verse 13, where he says, You are the salt of the earth, but 
If salt has lost its taste, then how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, from what I understand about salt, which isn't a lot, I know there is actually a book out there on the history of salt that I have heard is really fascinating. I know a few people in the room that have read it. But what I understand about salt is that in its purified form, so pure salt, it's impossible for pure salt to lose its saltiness because it has been because pure salt is a stable compound, right? This is if you remember any high school chemistry, this is basic high school chemistry, right? Now, contextually in the New Testament period, most salt, there probably was some that was purified, but most salt was not purified. It could be purified with the technology they had at the time, but you don't need machinery to purify salt. But at the same time, I don't think that is really Jesus' concern here. That's not his point. Purified salt is not his point, right? And besides, Jesus created salt. I imagine he fully understood the difference between purified salt and salt with impurities in it. What Jesus is doing, rather, with this illustration is using an obvious illustration to make a statement about the identity of his disciples, of disciples of the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that disciples must never allow themselves to become diluted and tasteless. Because, like impure salt that has lost its saltiness, it has become useless. There's nothing good to do with it except to throw it away. And so Jesus is telling us that disciples, those who are identified in him and with him and the gospel, are not to become diluted by false teaching or by heresy or by the world or even by our sinful desires. Because our effectiveness as kingdom citizens would then be useless. Because we would no longer be able to flavor and to purify and to preserve and to endure. And the only way we maintain our effectiveness or our saltiness is through the costly grace of the righteousness of Christ. But then... He goes on and says that our saltiness is not only our saltiness that relates to our identity in him, but also our visibility. And so he goes on and he says, you are the light of the world and a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Now, light is a pretty common theme throughout all of Scripture. Right? In, the, in the Old Testament, light is symbolic of God in Isaiah chapter 60. In Psalm 119.105, light, light is symbolic of the divine law. Your law is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Light is symbolic of the nation of Israel in contrast to the other nations. In the New Testament, Christ is called the light. Light shines in the darkness. Light helps to give us understanding and clarity. Light helps to navigate a dark room. If you've stubbed a toe, you're grateful for electricity. Right? Light helps to give us, help us, helps keep us focused on what's important in places where darkness dwells. Light is necessary for both clear vision and for life itself. Faith relies on the light of God. And kingdom disciples are called sons of light who shine in a dark and fallen world. And so Jesus' reason for these two illustrations here in 14 through 16 
are just as straightforward and obvious as the illustration of salt. Because frankly, no reasonable person, whether they're believers in Christ or not, are going to hear these illustrations and disagree with Jesus. So let me explain. So just consider, if you put a city on top of a hilltop, you can't hide it from onlookers, right? I mean, unless you're just so far away that, you know, the curvature of the earth hides the city. A city on a hill can't be hidden. And this, this is even more true at nighttime when the inhabitants of the city light up their homes to do their cooking and living in the evening and when the, when the sun goes down. Bonhoeffer reminds us here, he says that any Israelite hearing this sermon would have their minds immediately drawn to Jerusalem. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And like Jerusalem set on a hill, Jesus' point is that his disciples are also to be noticeable. We can't be hidden. He writes this, Bonhoeffer says, Discipleship is as visible as light in the night and as a mountain in the flatlands. And then he says this, he says, To flee into invisibility is to deny the call of Christ. Any community and any believer that wants to be invisible no longer follows after Jesus. And his use of this illustration is obvious then. Kingdom disciples are to be so identified with Christ and in Christ and his righteousness that his righteousness is to radiate from them so that it is obvious that they belong to him. And the same illustration with with hiding a lamp under a basket is also just as obvious. Not only does hiding a light source no longer light up a dark room, but in this period, if it was an oil lamp, I mean, the basket's going to catch on fire and not in a good way. You're going to burn down the house, right? So Jesus' purpose for these metaphors is that it is just as foolish to hide the light of the gospel as it is to light a lamp under a basket, Instead, like a lamp or like a city on a hill, place it high so that all may be influenced by it and drawn to its light. And this, this is the call to the costly grace of active discipleship. And it's costly because it costs us our lives. But it's active because it exemplifies the character of Christ, which he has already laid out for us in the Beatitudes, and by which we receive the full righteousness of Christ. But it is also active in that, just like the eye, if you were to walk into a dark room and a lamp were to be turned on, your eye is going to be naturally drawn to it. And so like the eye is naturally drawn to a lamp in a dark room, all the eyes of the world, which dwells in darkness, are to be directed toward the believer and to the church because we have been lightened by the light of Christ and the gospel. And he tells us here in this final verse here in verse 16, he says, The ultimate purpose of all of this is so that the world may see our good works or our righteousness in Christ and glorify the Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus illustrates here for us that our good works, our exceeding righteousness that is found in him, is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And the world must be able to see the visible and observable effects of salt and light of Christ in us. And so while we are promised that we will be persecuted in the Beatitudes, that doesn't give us an excuse to hide who we are in Jesus. As the kingdom characteristics noted in the Beatitudes are displayed in us and through our lives, they are to produce a God-glorifying response from everyone around us. And one of these good works is this work of repentance. 
So when we repent, God receives the glory because repentance is a work of faith that leads to salvation. And all repentance gives glory to God. And it bears fruit for the glory of God. And it also bears fruit for the good of the body of Christ. So let's just return real quickly to this list that Bonhoeffer gave us in the cost of discipleship. As, uh, and then I'm finished. We will come to the table. He tells us that cheap grace is cheap because it is grace both without the cross and grace without discipleship. So discipleship by definition is not an individual work. It's not an isolated work. It's a communal work that takes place within the covenant community of the body of Christ. So here is the way in which as a church, not just our own church, but the church, we need to repent. Because yes, we repent of our sins and we turn to Christ because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But we need to repent of our sin of contentment with cheap grace. Because costly grace calls us to follow Christ. And we follow Christ best when we bring one another along through the costly work of communal discipleship. And discipleship is costly because costly grace is the grace of discipleship that includes the cross. Discipleship and discipling are costly because they call us to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses and to be living sacrifices and to follow Jesus with one another. As he tells us here, he says, For I tell you, I swear by myself, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This takes the work of costly discipleship. But this is also the costly grace that, that allows us and allows the world to see our good works, to see the righteousness of Christ, and to direct their glory and their praise exactly where it belongs, to the Father in heaven. Amen. Amen.